Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Bruce Davis, author of the book, The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, published in 2022 by Brandeis University Press. As someone who worked for the Academy for 30 years, 20 as executive director, Bruce Davis is in a unique position to write about the organization. Using files and primary sources held at the Academy Library, he tells the story of how the Academy began and its first years prior to the changes brought to the industry by television. Welcome, Bruce Davis. Hi, Bruce. Good morning. Morning for me. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we're opposite coasts, so to speak. Uh, so um, I'm talking with Bruce Davis, author of the book, The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The title, I think, is pretty clear about it. It's The Academy and the Award. This is more of a story of as much a story of the overall Academy as it is uh, the award itself. And we'll talk about some of the ins and outs and some of the research and how you were able to do some of this as we go along. So, we, and let's talk about your background. How did you get into Hollywood, so to speak, and then get into that job? Well, it was, it was, it was an enormous fluke, to tell you the truth. I had been teaching um, at Juniata College in Pennsylvania, uh, headed up the drama department there and had been writing some scripts and working film into some of my courses. And um, I got to a point where I was kind of lobbing scripts out to the West Coast. And um, uh, somebody finally said, look, this is interesting, but if you're serious about this, you need to move out here. You really, you really can't do it from a distance. So I thought, okay, um, I, I've done teaching and I liked it, but I'll toss in my tenure here and um, see, see what happens. And I, I, I just, by, I, I knew almost no one in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, so the scripts were not uh, getting read very regularly. And finally, I met a guy at a party who said, look, my wife works for the Academy and they're looking for someone to head up a new program of seminars. Uh, in the uh, in the various specialties that academy members have, you should go talk to them. So I did, and uh, <laughs> against all expectations, they said, "Yeah, you should come and do this." So I was there for about ten years before they put me in charge of the of the staff, and um, you learned lots of things. They, they're an impressive group of people, as you might expect. Uh, to work with. They were much more knowledgeable about the history of movies uh, than I was at the time I started doing this. But um, I, uh, I gradually um, 
began to think, well, okay, I know pretty much about this. Maybe when I retire, uh, there's a book to be written. And um, so uh, that's, that was a while ago now. And I really, I really was overconfident. I thought I probably know more about the history of the academy than, than anybody. Certainly the members that I talked to uh, admitted they, they were completely vague about how it started, why it started, uh, who, who belonged, and how, how the awards uh, came to be. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll just write a book that tells everybody that. And um, as you sort of suggested, I, I, I thought I was pretty knowledgeable. But when I started doing the research, um, the library, the Herrick Library, which uh, is the Academy's library and one of the great specialized libraries in the world, uh, they, they just had enormous amounts of documents, correspondence, minutes of various committee meetings and everything. They, they buried me for a couple of years in information about the early history of the Academy. And I realized that I had, I had set out to do the early history. So I, I, I was an insider, yes, but I, the, the period I was writing about um, was before my time. And I was finding out uh, any number of very surprising things about the organization that I, I had never known. Yeah, because that's, that's in your introduction, and this is the part that I always like reading about with writers, especially historical uh, work like yours, is how you get into the sources. Because with any decent uh, book, nonfiction in particular, um, research is so much of the process. You have to know your subject, and sometimes what you think might be true, as, as we'll talk about, turns out not always to be the case, and it's, does, it takes getting into the information before you can actually um, figure it out, and it takes a long time to do the research before you do the writing. So, in fact, most researchers will say you've got to reach a point where you finally have to say, okay, I've done enough research. I have to start writing now. So, uh, and based <laughs> right. on it, and we'll talk about the sources. Well, it, based on the material you had, it, it's clear that it could have taken. It took a long time just to go through the material and try to see what's in there. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then you 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 have to you have to start looking for a storyline. You can't just say report everything that you're finding. Everything is not equally important or equally interesting. Um, and that was uh, something that took a couple of years. What are, what are the main lines of development here? Um, I'm writing this not for scholars of the academy. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you have to leave some things out. You have to make some assumptions about what people already know. It's, it's an interesting process. And, of course, uh, other historians and other history historians of film and and popular culture um, find this kind of information very useful because it tells stories and there's a large amount of writing now being done about this period of time in Hollywood and, 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 and in films, both biographies and others. So being able to know that um, we can fill in some picture, some more pieces of the story uh, with, you, with the research that you did. You retired in 2011. Uh, when did you decide, well, I, it, I really want to tell, try to tell this story. I, I think that was something that I was beginning to focus on uh, in, in my last year uh, as executive director. I thought, well, what do I do? I quit cold turkey. Uh, what do I do um, afterwards? And um, so, yeah, I, I had been aware that there was a kind of a deficiency of, of uh, other books, uh, other articles on the very earliest, um, very earliest uh, time at the Academy. And I thought, well, let me go back in there and, and see what's there. The story had always been um, that um, Louis B. Mayer willed the Academy into building, into being in 1927. Uh, as a kind of defense against the labor movement that was rolling across the United States. He didn't, he didn't want 
the people who made the movies to be um, to be forming guilds and whatnot. So he thought, here, we'll bring everybody together uh, that has a role in the filmmaking process and we'll all be good friends and we'll talk out our problems and it'll be it'll be very simple. Well, of course, it wasn't quite that simple. And when you start organizing um, uh, people that include actors and writers and directors and all the other sorts of major contributors to films, uh, they may not have the same uh, ideas about what a, uh, a movie organization ought to be focusing on as Mr. Mayor did. So it took a long time feeling each other out to decide what the Academy would be. Much of your research uh, is in was in the Academy's own files. And as you pointed out, most of this information was never looked at by anyone. Uh, you ended up being one of the first who was able to use it for the research that you did. And even in the introduction, you sort of indicated that the board, they, they okayed you using it, but there was a slight concern or... or now, concern might be too strong of a word. Wary, I think, is the word you use. They were wary. Any particular reason you felt that that uh, that they were concerned about you doing this? Uh, not about me. It wasn't that they thought I might be a person who would retire and immediately do a hatchet job on the organization. Um, but like me, they didn't know what might be in there, and they wouldn't. They. They thought, hmm, is this a good idea? Is there stuff we don't really want to get out? Uh, and I don't mean that they thought there was some huge series of scandals or anything, but they just thought maybe there's a reason we've never made this stuff available. Uh, and they, they talked it over. They thought it would be a good idea, finally. And uh, they were they were terrific about it. They gave me a gave me an office across town um, in our in our building that holds the uh, the film archive and um, gave me a place to to do a lot of my work for a couple of years after I retired. So that was very helpful. When we talk about files and, and you do detail the kind of things we're talking about, um, what kind of, I mean, I would think that anybody who wanted to do the research on any kind of organization and its history uh, including companies, would probably have a specific idea of what that might have included. We have a tendency, you know, with Hollywood or with, you know, with the movies to give it a bigger-than-life story, and yet much of the material you used, according to you, I don't want to use the word mundane, although that may be part of it, too, just the basics. What kind of material did you actually find being available to you? Well, there were there were uh, kind of dramatic surprises in some cases. You'd open a box and be flipping through, and I realized these these were the ballots, the the the, the marked ballots from the first year of the Academy Awards. This was before Price Waterhouse was involved, and after they'd been counted, somebody just put them in a box and stored them away. And there they were. They were they were signed in those days, so you knew whose ballot you were looking at. And I thought, wow, an, an early version of the problem. How, how much do I betray here? Should I tell people how so-and-so voted in 1928? Um, and um, I, I just thought it was pretty safe to uh, let those things out, although I didn't spend a lot of time on who voted for what. Um, so, yeah, you, you, had, uh, you, had, you had correspondence back and forth with people you had had no idea had ever had a connection with the academy. The, the key thing, I think, uh, that, that, that no one had ever seen before were the minutes of the Board of Governors, uh, which exist actually even prior to the, to the formation of the organization. They began having meetings where they were keeping minutes, even though they didn't know what this organization they were thinking about forming would be. So those were those were um, just um, completely valuable in that no one had seen those. The, in the other stuff, the box stuff from through the years, uh, a scholar working in a particular area would have, of course, been 
been given access to uh, something when the library staff knew that there was material uh, relating to his or her subject in the box. So they, they wouldn't deliberately hold something up from somebody who, who could have made good use of it. But on the whole, um, the stuff had not been available. And, um, you know, some of it was trivial and not terribly interesting. And some other things you'd get a nice little surprise. Yeah, because um, Herrick Library is well known in many people that I've talked to about their books. As I mean, frankly, if you're going to do any writing about Hollywood films or filmmakers, actors and so on, you're going to need to use files and information from Herrick and other places in, 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 the, in Los Angeles. And um, it's just great to hear how much of this kind of material is still out there that yeah. the organization did a good job of trying to make sure that they've documented and kept track of the information. Because if, if you've got as much useful information about the early period, that that just shows that they knew that this was material that needed to be saved. So the academy itself uh, begins in 1927, but as you just said, um, it was actually being discussed even before then. Um, right. And let's talk a little bit about that period and why as you pointed out, that Louis B. Mayer decided that this was something that was worth trying to do. And and, and it wasn't necessarily just for the uh, artistic aspect of the film industry. As as in most situations, there were extra reasons, alter not not even ulterior. He was pretty clear about why he was doing it. So yep. uh, what was the going on as far as... Uh, at this period in 27, we're talking about late silent and just the beginning of the sound period. In, in, and of course, by now, all the studios are in pretty much in place. What was he looking at and that was particularly, you mentioned this briefly a little while ago, but what was the aspect about uh, labor unions and such that caused him to be so concerned? Well, um, I, I don't think anybody who ran... Um, all or a portion of a profitable industry uh, looked on the unionization of their employees as a as a good thing. Uh, occasionally, there were exceptions to that, but um, I, I don't think I don't think Louis B was progressive in that sense. Um, he 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 was very concerned about about what he considered uh, the industry sort of hurting itself because. The various sections, the um, the directors, the art directors, the there weren't sound guys yet, so we're not talking about sound guys in the very first few years, but that that they they all had their problems, and he thought if they would get together and understand each other's problems, why they why they couldn't shut down uh, a production on something at this particular hour every day, because sometimes you had to run on while all the technical stuff was set up, uh, you know, the kind of things that would be there. So he, he really, he really had a kind of a, uh, maybe a little bit of a, of an over rosy idea of all that could be, um, all that could be settled by having people, uh, talk together. And in fact, the Academy did that kind of thing. For the first few years, they they set up a uh, a very um, I, I think a, a reasonable system of dealing with employee complaints and um, and settling them. And they didn't always settle them as I had expected going in in favor of the studios. Very often, the uh, the actor who had a complaint about um, not being paid. They did. I tell stories about them. Um, can't say his name, uh, Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff uh, shot a picture in Mexico and had to, had trouble with paperwork because he had a British passport and he, he couldn't get back across the border. And um, he had to stay there several days and the studio wouldn't reimburse him for that time. Uh, and, and when they got into the room and took Mr. Karloff's complaint, uh, he, he was, he, he won. And I noticed that in most cases, the accommodations that were worked out 
were in favor of the person who had complained. So the studios were willing to uh, to lose in these kind of adjudications. And um, so that was stuff, stuff that went on, but um, now we've forgotten where we started this question. Well, we are talking about the kind of thing that, because um, your first chapter, unions, censors, and scandals. So obviously, as, as you pointed out, Mayer and, and others decided that this was a good time to try to put some organization together. What its purpose was ultimately, uh, no one would know for sure, but I mean, obviously it was to try to, to put things together in a way that controls not always the best way of putting it, but at least structure. Because um, by now we know, you remember, the, the, the Hollywood you know the the studios have only been in existence for 10 to 15 years at this point so right. this is still a very new industry and until very recently people probably didn't think much of it at all in fact by now now by the late 20s it has been shown what's what's likely to happen because this is some of the things that started to happen where more and more of what was going on in in movies and their making became public and became known by more and, and of interest to others. So um, putting together and one of the things that I see in the in the book is that while it may have started with someone like a studio head over time, other people would gain control and actors, for example, would become very important to the overall process. And so um, giving them and other people in the creative branches some ability to be involved. Um, Censors. I mean, censorship in early Hollywood is one of those subjects that are, even today I think people don't completely understand what was going on and, 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 or what wasn't going on, and, and you talk about it and its relationship. But right there at the beginning, uh, where were they getting uh, pushback to, to, to be more careful with what they were producing? Well, you, <laughs> you began to have several kinds of, uh, of problems. And of course, the newspapers of, of the time were uh, uh, very energetic and they loved scandals and they loved, uh, they loved uh, to uh, sensationalize anything they could get. And many of the problems that they focused on were pretty sensational. So there were a, there were a series of late 20s uh, scandals, uh, including a murder and a rape and a this and that. And um, uh, the Academy was not uh, the, the first body to emerge out of that concern within the industry. Um, and uh, so you had the, the origins of uh, today's MPA, which used to be the MPAA and earlier had even more letters in its, um, in its name. Uh, but it was, uh, it was uh, originally referred to as the Hayes office. And um, Mr. Hayes was, uh, had been the former postmaster general of the United States. And he was a very dour uh, character. And uh, his job was to eliminate all raciness from the motion picture. And um, he, he set about that with a strong will and there was enough power that the studios uh, took it seriously, not as seriously immediately in the 20s, but by the mid 30s, uh, the Hayes office was, was in control of the content of motion pictures and was very, very careful that uh, nothing irreligious, nothing, um, demeaning to women or clergymen or uh, it, it had, had a long list of things you could not do in a motion picture and the studios pretty much had to toe the line there so when this when the academy is finally formed and in the and it's overall uh, structure has a board of governors what kind of uh parts of the of the industry were included in that board was it mostly at the beginning mostly uh producers or studio heads or were actors involved or other creatives involved pretty early on from the beginning um coming out of the series of meetings they had before really announcing the formation of the academy to the industry they they knew that they had to have the artists uh involved uh, they weren't maybe 
absolutely sure what that what that might um, uh, lead to, but um, yeah, no, they were the 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 heads of the studios were very much involved, but they were careful to have uh, distinguished uh, actors and directors and pretty much the kinds of people who are in it even now. But uh, a lot of them at first were kind of tossed into one uh, category uh, called technicians that uh, involve art directors and musicians, oddly enough, or composers, uh, people that you wouldn't think of as a technician necessarily. And as the numbers of those people in the industry uh, grew uh, over time, uh, they began to have their own separate branches. So there was a branch for editors and a branch for, uh, they called them art directors and rather than production designers and so on and so on. So it was, uh, it was very much an evolution over the early decades. How, how did they decide who was actually going to be in the academy? We know, uh, this is still something that I think we go through, we see, hear about this in, in articles over time, especially when something unusual happens related to the Academy Awards or the, is that not everyone that works in Hollywood or in the industry is a member of the Academy. So back then, how did they decide who was going to be allowed to be a member and what their actual purpose was as far as what they're supposed to be doing? You know, what did they write down and say, this is what we want to do? Not enough, I'm afraid. I, I'd love to have a clearer answer to that. I, I, I never found anything on a, a meeting or series of meetings where they said we want this and we want this. Um, it seemed to have evolved. Um, and that's, a, that's an interesting question that you're asking. Uh, the, the fact that you are an actor, for example, does not mean you qualify for Academy membership. Uh, the fact that you have worked as a film editor will not necessarily um, get you accepted uh, until you've reached a certain level of eminence. The whole idea from the beginning was that this is a kind of honor society for the industry. And they sort of evolved by a kind of acclamation uh, what, the, what the disciplines would be. And um, so you, you get, okay, we're gonna have actors um, we're going to have um, directors. How about assistant directors? How about people who work for uh, for directors? Are we going to have um, uh, are we going to have lighting people in there? What who who do we who qualifies? And what they kind of evolved was a system where um, the the ten twelve categories of members of potential membership exist. Uh, but you kind of want not only the most distinguished careers filling the slots, uh, but you, they have to be at, at kind of at the pinnacle, I call it in the book, a kind of pyramid uh, of influence. Um, so in cinematography, for example, the, the, um, the director of photography is the only person who's really qualified for academy membership in most cases. Not all of the very important crew people uh, who report to him or her, um, you, you have to be kind of at the decision-making pinnacle of whatever your, your discipline is. Um, and so that, that kind of evolves and it, it, uh, it, you see changes here and there in one branch as, as, the, as the nature of the branch changes, uh, as all of the, uh, the technical fields uh, proliferated uh, after the 60s. Um, so it, it's, it's something that, that is fluid through the history, but um, the, the general acceptance at the top level was always that um, this is, this is an honor society. This is a pantheon of the greatest artists we have in, in the various subfields sub of filmmaking. So obviously 27 is when the uh, organization begins. How quickly, or must have been very quickly given when it happened, how quickly did they decide they wanted to put together an award concept or an award process? 
Well, they were talking about it as early as 27, but then they kind of dropped the subject. Nobody quite saw how to do it. And uh, it was as though they were reluctant to take it on. And then they, they, formed, a, uh, they formed a committee uh, and then, uh, there was a committee kind of working on, okay, how would we do this? What, what would the awards be for? Uh, who, who would get them? Um, and you'd see other organizations where it works quite differently, where you have maybe uh, 20 people coming up, having won a particular category. Everybody who worked in that, they'll come up and they'll get the reward. The Academy was tight-fisted from the beginning. They decided, no, we want the key person who made the key aesthetic decisions. And um, so that's, that's kind of how it worked from the very beginning. And um, the, the, each, each of the disciplines would work out their own criteria for awards. And um, you can see that evolving in the book. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah because even now uh, i know things have changed over time there were constant changes but it's still the same thing where each particular branch is in is does their own nominating as opposed to um, everyone being involved in the nomination process so i would assume that started at least the concept maybe not exactly the way it is now but the concept was to do that so that the idea being that the people who know the most about the particular branch are those that are in it. They, they had to learn that. The first two years, they did it the other way around. Everybody uh, could suggest nominees in every category. And then there was a central committee that met and kind of looked at all at the results of all those suggestions. And that's all they were at first was suggestions rather than actual ballots. And uh, out of the central committee, uh, finally, you get the uh, nominees in the various categories uh, and then the membership. But no, then they themselves kind of pick the winner. So they had to kind of reverse that and, and use what you just laid out. We have these, these pools of expertise in the various disciplines. Why aren't we using them, the most knowledgeable people about um, editing or art direction or whatever? And let them pick the uh, let them pick the nominees, and then the whole organization will decide which of those nominees is the award winner. And they've so, stuck with that, right? <laughs> so, were there actual controversies in the early awards? I mean, nowadays it's just a given. Every time the awards are given or announced, the nominees there's always going to be some statement about so and so didn't get nominated or what was this and that but during that early period even though it was structured differently were there automatically almost from the beginning issues related to who got nominated and who won versus others yes there has never been a year when there weren't those voices saying how could they get it so wrong uh so that became part of the game, I suppose, um, and it still very much is. Um, but in one of the early years, in 1930, there were enough people nominated and, and actually uh, presented with awards that seemed to be kind of insiders, uh, that there was mumbling about that, that you had to know somebody to be sure of, of getting a nomination or an award, and they... Um, they made some changes as a result of that, that uh, 
that, that left the uh, the grumbling uh, to the to the south. And uh, so, yeah, they I mean, they were always worried about it. But I, I think it's generally accepted that uh, unlike some elections we could talk about, everyone accepts that this one is accurate. Um, we may not give the award to the right person on stage, but uh, but at least we know who it's supposed to be. Right. Yeah, sometimes it's a matter of, and this is one of the issues the Academy has had over the years, is the people who are actually doing the voting and, and how well or how well they represent the industry and that's usually where it is it's not what they vote for or what their votes were it's do they represent the organiz the, the industry well and and that's something that i can imagine would consistently be something to come forward based on as we've said not everybody's in the academy so not everybody votes for the academy awards and and therefore right. that can always make a difference as, as as to who but any awards system you have um forever and we know now there's so many awards and you mentioned this in the epilogue about how the amount of awards out there you know you have to figure out okay which ones are good awards and which ones are just whatever right. and and while these days an award awards like golden globes are for whatever reason are given higher uh, uh status we know in any knowledge of the golden globes as an example they've had their problems too when you can't really go back to earlier years and look at a golden globe award and say that was representative of anything so not to go in off on a into a different tangent but at least, uh, but this is what happens with with any kind of uh, system whereby you give awards. Yep. So at the beginning there, then the people who were um, in charge, so to speak, or at, in the academy making decision making, um, did that start to shift to different groups early on? We know, like I said before, we get into the, 30s and, and forward and we get into more and more um, actors and, and creatives, if we can use that word, versus um, executives, creative folks being involved. And you, you mean talk in, in, term, in terms of membership? And running. You know, that awards voting. Uh, yeah, the, the awards, no. now the academy itself. Right. Well, um the the actors were the largest branch from the very beginning um and if you think about any any uh, any set where a movie's being made there are more actors running around usually only one director one cinematographer and so on so there are there are more actors needed in the uh, in the industry and uh, their numbers have always reflected that that presence um but I think it's it uh, proportionately kind of the same thing. I I, I don't actually know uh, where the producers branch stands in numbers off the top of my head, but it is it is not the largest branch by by any means. Uh, and that became a very sensitive uh, sensitive point in the '30s when um, when the new uh, guilds, the talent guilds, were coming into being. And we're very, very wary of the fact that uh, the producers had such a presence at all in the academy. So it, it wasn't an easy decision for the organization how to handle that. Right. So, of course, an organization that's now over 75 years old, you think of it sort of as this, um, that it's always been there, so to speak. But what happened that the academy almost that it started to go through its growing pains and almost uh, completely fell apart. Yeah, there were, and, and that happened twice. It was, it was really near, near death uh, and was being complained, uh, was being uh, described as, as already dead in, in the trade papers sometimes. Um, the, the main problem had to do with the formation of the guilds, which I had mentioned, um, and, and almost all of them uh, became quite hostile to the academy. They thought that the academy was not good for individual artists uh, because the producers had a prominent place in, in the governing body and in the, decision, in the decisions 
that were being made. Uh, and when we talk about when we talk about producers, that's a little confusing uh, because the, the, the word means two different things. Uh, but when they talked about the producers in the 30s, they were talking about the studio heads, not people. Some of them were actually producing movies in the sense of the way we describe producers today. Uh, but, but they used the word producer almost interchangeably for the job of getting together individual pictures and getting them made and running the studio and deciding things like which pictures were going to be made. Um, but in any case, the, the, uh, the academy kind of fell afoul of the forming guilds and people began seceding from the academy and joining the uh, burgeoning writer's branch or actor's branch or whatever. And the, the, um, the membership got uh, very small there for a while. And uh, there was a point at the end of 1933 where they fired the entire staff, except one person, and uh, uh, kind of walked away from the organization. And it wasn't clear that it was going to come back into existence, but it did. Um, so mostly it was, it was guild hostility, but also, and this is the, the major surprise that I had in writing this book, <laughs> The other problem had to do with money. Uh, we think of the academy as being well-funded. And in my lifetime, it always has been. Uh, I don't mean that's due to me, but <laughs> when no, I but came you, to it, you, you I, come right out and say to a large extent, what helps, <laughs> helps the more recent years as far as funding is concerned and it's television. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and they resisted going into television. They did not want the awards to go on. Nobody in Hollywood, except television people thought that was a good idea because the studios saw that as giving away to people, giving for free uh, access to these wonderful creatures, actors and actresses that they had committed to uh, turning into some of the most famous and beloved people in the world. And suddenly you're gonna just put them in a box in people's living room where they can see our property. They didn't like that, so there was there was great resistance, and um, it it was only because uh, the academy was down to its they, they were leading a very hand to mouth existence as they had done the whole time. They were it was a very underfunded. It was not funded at all. It had no source of income except dues, and you can imagine the dues during the depression weren't very lavish. And um, they, they just were always having to go back to uh, the producer's organization uh, and say, gee, let, help, give us enough money just to stage one more award show. Uh, and I say show, I shouldn't. It was a one, one ceremony. It wasn't a show yet. There wasn't really that much to do. Uh, it shouldn't cost that much, but it also didn't produce any money to help the, uh, the academy do other things it might have liked to do. Um, so yeah, those were those were two big issues that almost brought it down. And it was, as you say, the final acceptance of the concept of moving the um, moving the ceremonies into a televised show that began giving them a, a, a reliable income that uh, actually by the time I was executive director was we don't like to brag, but it was lavish. We, right. we, uh, of course, during this period, even before, you know, the, pre-television, they began to allow radio, and then they also were in the newsreels, so they did do the publicity part to try to to bring the organization and its awards into a more positive, not positive, but into light, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was Frank Capra's importance during uh, this this earlier period? Uh, this is right around the time that the organization is um, foundering, uh, as we've been talking about. But Frank Capra becomes an important person as far as the Academy is concerned. I think, as I say in the book at one point, I think if you had to rank the importance of the Academy presidents over the years that Capra would have to be given the first um, position because he, 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 really, he, he really kind of damped down that kind of hostility 
between the various guilds and the academy, which was just unbelievably um, vicious in some respects. And, and the academy wasn't, wasn't fighting back. The academy wasn't denigrating the guilds in any way, but the guilds were denigrating the, um, the academy. Uh, and uh, uh, Capra... Capra had kind of stayed out. He was, he was probably the most distinguished director in terms of academy love uh, in the industry at the time this is happening in the, in the 30s. Um, so he had enormous respect, but he hadn't really joined the director's guild. He had stayed apart from that. And finally, he hit a point where he thought, um, I, I should get involved in this. So he joined the guild. And he then was made head of the committee negotiating with the producers group. And they started bullying him off. Uh, he wasn't, he, he'd, he'd get a meeting set up and there was a famous one where uh, he went over for the meeting and the producer he was supposed to be meeting was out at the, uh, out at the Santa Anita racetrack. And so that got him boiling and he came back at that point, um, so I, I, I skipped an important beat. He, he, had, he had become elected president of the Directors Guild at the same time he was president of the Academy. So those two organizations, which everybody saw as mortal enemies, were suddenly run, being run by the same guy. And that did change things. And um, so he, he threatened to kind of cancel the Academy Awards, which are just a couple of weeks away at that point, scared everybody to death because he didn't tell people at the Academy he was gonna do this. And um, the producers didn't know whether he was bluffing or not, but they finally rolled under, agreed to recognize the Directors Guild as the negotiating body for the directors in the industry and things calmed down a bit. Um, so he did, he did at that point, Kind of saved the academy, although he did it by throwing it under the bus. Um, and he, uh, he 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 kind of formed the basis of a of a more adult relationship between the guilds and the and the producers. So he basically settled things down, so to speak, at that point. He did. He absolutely did. Yeah. And of course, this is one of those things where reading the book and, and, and knowing a little bit about the history of this period in, 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 in the Academy and also other aspects, where we see other famous people who were actors in particular who tended to be involved in the Academy, and, and you have a chapter about Betty Davis, and some of these folks, some of this information you're bringing out in more detail as to how they affected or how they were viewed by uh, people. And the fact that somebody like Betty Davis, who as a female, let's, let's be honest, during the period, uh, the fact that she had some uh, major importance uh, is interesting. It, it is. And I should clarify that there's no relation between myself and uh, Betty Davis. But uh, the fact is, the story had always been, and it was very much um, in view at the time she died. Uh, everybody talked about, yes, she was president of the Academy, but it was a stormy event. And the, 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 the establishment of the Academy didn't get along with her at all. And it was all very antagonistic. And then I started reading about the period and learned lots of interesting things. Um, and, and one of them was that her election was extremely unusual. Normally the president uh, is chosen for each term from among the governors of the academy. But that wasn't necessarily the way they did it. They had the right in the bylaws to reach out to any member of the academy and install him or her as president. And that's what they did with Betty Davis. And she was arguably the hottest star in the business at, at that point in his career, her career. She was getting nominations every year. She kept winning Oscars. And, and it, was a, it was a pretty flashy move for the Academy to make. Um, but it didn't last very long. Um, she was only president for, I think, like 50 days. 
And maybe that sounds like somebody who left in a huff. But during those 50 days, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And so I had never understood the relationship between that event and the Academy. Um, but obviously, things changed enormously uh, suddenly. And, and instead of making plans for the next awards, you were wondering, are we ever going to have awards again? Um, people on the West Coast in particular were very, very wary about uh, further attacks on, um, on U.S. shores. And um, so that uh, kind of explained her going off to other projects like running the Hollywood canteen and helping servicemen. Um, but it, as it turned out, I, 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 I'd see the discussions in the board minutes and there was never this great opposition between the old guard and, and Betty Davis. She came in um, suggesting very strongly that um, extras who had been voting for the last couple of years because of uh, a compromise with the, uh, in the Burton, a guild solution, there were, there were hundreds and hundreds suddenly of voters who most actors didn't really consider actors. And she suggested that they be taken off of the voting rolls. Nobody disagreed with that. Everybody knew it was awkward to have these uh, untutored um, artists um, in the voting electorate. Uh, thought that was a good idea. Uh, and there were a number of other things, but but they were they were in sync. They weren't they weren't fighting, uh, and they never did after she left. Um, so it's hard. It's partly. It's partly that she wrote a book 20, more than that, more than 20 years later, um, where she suggested that she had been kind of oppressed and it was a very grumpy book. And I think she was leading a kind of a grumpy life in general at that point. And uh, so that I think is where people got the idea that uh, her, her tenure had been, uh, had been very antagonistic, but it, it, the evidence shows that it wasn't. So, so your book is meant to really only cover the first 30 years or so, although you do obviously include more recent information. Right. Was there a specific decision on that part in yours, or was it just a matter you knew it was impossible to try to go any farther, given the, the wealth of information you had access to, or what made you decide that that was the time period that you wanted to cover? Well, you're right. That was a... That was a uh, perplexing uh, decision the whole way through the process. Okay, I see how we start. That's easy. Where do we stop? And um, I, at first, I thought, yeah, the coming of TV is clearly the great event in the Academy's life, and we'll have to do it around that. And, and but then, uh, as you suggested, there were some of the threads we were following, like the relationship between the Academy and the MPAA that were ongoing after that. And I thought, let's, let's tie that up. And there were a couple of other things. Um, the after effect of the McCarthy era, uh, which had a, a kind of recrudescence um, with the uh, Ilya Kazan Award. And um, I thought, all right, well, let's just grab that and end, the, uh, <laughs> end that story from the 50s. Um, so yeah, here and there, uh, as you suggest, I allowed a, a, a story to complete itself without stopping right in the fifties when the, when the television comes in as savior. Right. There's no question. I agree with you. Tell the, the, the advent of television is such an obvious change in Hollywood and, and, and the industry because eventually by this point, it of course also ties in with the end of the studio system and the eventual end of the studio system and, and a lot of changes that would occur going into the 60s and forward. So it is definitely a logical place. Um, one of the things I'm glad that to we... hear somebody agrees. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because yeah. things would change because, um, as you say, not only did it suddenly change that the new system, allowing television to, to show the, the Academy, the award ceremonies and such, even though it was, we were seeing them, but they were much more, became more normal starting in the 50s. Um, what were some of the, to, to sort of get towards the end on something a little lighter, 
what kind of, in your research, what kind of uh, false stories, what kind of legends did you, were you able to once and for all um, put, an, put a stop to or to get, to get the real story once and for all? Uh, <laughs> well, the, I, I guess the most obvious one is the, the, um, the controversy about how the award came to be called the Oscar. And the whole time I was working there, every year, uh, as the as award season rolled around, there would be articles somewhere about how Oscar got his name. And there were three different versions. And sometimes people would just opt for one. Other times they would try to out <laughs> lay out all three. And um, I thought, there has to be a way to get to the bottom of this. And I started poking around. And I got myself to a point where um, I, I could pretty flatly disprove all three of the stories that had uh, existed. Um, they, there were things about them. You could, you knew when they said they had come up with the name and you knew it was in such and such a uh, uh, variety article two years earlier than that. And so you knew that they had. Um, and that, that was again, Betty Davis. She was one of the claimants. And she finally gave that up in a huff and said, okay, I didn't really do it. But she had the best story. So she should get some points for that. Uh, and, uh, and then there was, um, uh, there was a, um, a kind of gossip columnist, uh, Sidney Skolsky, who had an elaborate story about how he had, he had come up with it in desperation one Oscar night when he was writing his copy and he, he got tired of calling it the Academy Award of Merit and he couldn't remember the word statuette or how to spell it. And he finally just started calling it Oscar. And um, that's, that's not true. That, in fact, the, the date he gives in, uh, in his book about when he, when he um, dubbed the award the Oscar uh, is three years after it began to appear in, in print. So. We, we let him go. And uh, the other claimant is um, Margaret Herrick, the lady whose name is on the Great Academy Library. And she would she had a couple of different versions of her story, which is unfortunate because they don't always jive. And uh, she, too, has a problem. And uh, as much as I would have loved to uh, award that that honor to my predecessor, um, she 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 was telling a little tale there, uh, and so I thought we're never going to solve this. Uh, and then I, by a series of flukes, I found out that there was a an obscure museum up in the hills in the resort country near uh, L.A. Um, that had the name of a fellow who had been associated with a uh, one one version of the story that didn't involve the big three claimants. And I found that museum and I found archival papers from him. He had started writing a book and I found out who named the Oscar. And I'm not going to tell you, but uh, but uh, I, I think I've got the right person who really who really deserves the credit and has, has never had it. So that was fun. Uh, there were also a couple of sort of irritating rumors about people who had served as the model for the statuette. And first of all, if you know much about art, you know it's not the kind of work that requires a human figure to be standing there while you carve this very stylized and um, streamlined version of a, of a human body. Um, and and the, the, the claimants to have, uh, there, was a, there was a sword fighter, a, uh, a Czech sword, instructor, fencing instructor, who spent some time in Hollywood and was uh, was said to have been pressed into duty as the model for the statuette, but nothing panned out on that. And uh, the, the, the most widely spread story uh, has to do with a, a Hispanic actor, director, uh, who also, uh, he was famous for being a story maker, a storyteller, uh, a fantasist. And I think this was another of his fantasies. So um, we, we cleared that up somewhat. There was no model for the Oscar. 
Well, as I say, there is uh, there is so much in the book that it was great to show how you were able to use the archives and other material to put together the story. And and unlike, obviously, there have been stories and books about the Academy Awards and the Academy in the past, but you were able to do it with material that uh, wasn't necessarily used in those situations. And I think that's where uh, the, posi- the, the most positive aspect of your book is that you were able to access and use sources and... Um, that helped to tell that story. Uh, now, I, I know at the end of the in, uh, of the introduction, you sort of said, well, somebody else can do the next part or maybe I'll do the <laughs> next part. But I mean, given, like we said before, you've been out of the um, academy now for over 10 years since you've retired, but you're still out that direction. What is your feeling of how the academy is doing right now? Well, this is a tough time. Um, I, I, the, uh, the person in my position. It doesn't have the same name anymore. Uh, Bill Kramer uh, and I talked about it a little bit after he was appointed and I, I sympathized with him. I, I, I told him I would, I would much rather have started the job when I did than when you did because um, uh, again, it looks like the Academy is, is going back into a period when um, funding things is going to be a problem. The the uh, 40, 45 million uh, audience of domestic viewership that we used to count on just as a regular thing is not likely to, to come back. And uh, even more fundamentally, uh, the Academy is devoted to the theatrical motion picture. And um, how long are we going to have theatrical motion pictures? I think, I think we've got a good year going this year. I think we could we could put up, uh, we're, we're going to be in a position to put up a, uh, a series of Best Picture nominees that uh, many people have seen. Uh, and the more people that have seen the nominated films, the more likely they are to care about which one of them is, um, is voted Best Picture for that year. And we've had a couple of years when the, when the nominees were such um, uh, small films that didn't even play in in mid-sized country, uh, mid-sized towns around the country, um, why would you watch a ceremony um, about movies you never heard of? So we want a lot of movies that people have heard of this year, and we want that to be an ongoing trend, and the Academy will pull itself out of this uh, doldrum that it's in right now. But um, it's, it's, it's an edgy period for the organization. Well, it's, it was. There's every kinds of organizations are still dealing with. Unfortunately for the academy, the the, the pandemic didn't make it any easier. Uh, no. And there were already, you know, when you talk about streaming and everything else, but the pandemic definitely put a uh, damper on things and. The good thing, as you're pointing out, is that you can actually look at the marquees or, or see what's playing at the local theaters, and you're actually <laughs> seeing multiple films at the same time rather than for a period there where it was only to fill out the, the theater. They ended up having to do revivals of older films and things like that, and now things little by little seem to be coming back around, and that's the I, case in a lot of industries. Yeah. So, well... As I say, the book is 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 great because of the the detail you put in and the and the information you were able to provide. I I think it helps that you uh, did have personal experience in the actual organization, even though it was prior to the periods that we're talking about. Uh, after the periods we're talking about, excuse me. But I think understanding the organization as you did. Uh, probably made a lot made this process much more enlightening to the to the reader. Um, so all Thanks. I can say, all I can say is I really appreciate the book that you wrote, and I hope uh, it continues to do well. And the f- people who are looking at it will get a better sense. The fact that it was published through a university press, I think, is even better because cinema, you know, movie historians are going to really look at this and say, um, here's a story that we really never knew the ins and outs of, and it just adds to the overall uh, story of Hollywood that we now have due to some of this kind of work. 
I appreciate your saying that. That's uh, that's something that had occurred to me. I'm not sure. I wasn't sure it would occur to anybody else. That's uh, well. You, 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 it was the perfect example of a historical study because you use primary sources and material that hadn't been looked at before to try to tell your story and your analysis. So, uh, it's it's an exact, ex a perfect example of how good historians do their work. So, uh, I think uh, people should appreciate that. Okay. So, thank you for your time, and and as I said before, I hope things continue to go well for you. I hope that you found this conversation interesting and agree with me that Bruce's book fills a valuable historical niche about the Motion Picture Academy. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.